a master navigator from Satawal, an island in the Carolinas, Micronesia, in the western part of the Pacific, has had a very powerful influence in the Hawaiian Islands and all of Polynesia uh, since the mid-70s. His name's Mao, Mao Pialag. And a student of his, a Hawaiian man, began studying with him when he was about 25. This is now uh, over 20 years later. And at one point he was having a hard time learning. For example, uh, Mao, whose skill is in navigating without any instruments, no modern instruments, merely through reading nature through his senses, the five physical senses, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, sensation to the body, and intuitive, intuitive understanding through the mind itself. He had learned from, from tradition, Mao, through his father, grandfather, and a long line. So it was part of his nature. At any one time, he could read at least five different types of ocean waves. Mm, um, a predominant ground swell and local winds and storms off some distance, currents. At any one time he could hold that. And Nainoa, the young Hawaiian student, is having a hard time. So Mao said at one time, ah, forget it. You're just too old. At the time, he was only about 25. Mao himself had begun learning when he was one. And by the time he was five, he was sailing on his own. So he said, uh, you know, just forget it. You can learn other things. You don't have to, you don't have to be as good as me. <laughs> You're lucky in starting to work with your minds at such a young age. It's more difficult. The longer we wait, the more the mind starts getting edgy, stiff, tight, uh, dull, and so forth. And it can get that way if we only learn the way we've been taught to learn, uh, the kind of education that, re that memorizes or compares, evaluates, and interprets. The kind of mind that was important to the early navigator and Mao, is, uh, as a master elder navigator, is one of probably only five left on the planet who, who can do nature navigation through reading waves, clouds, wind, color, star cycles, moon and sun and so forth. Um, what he's had the opportunity of doing is, is keeping that natural mind alive. Meditation in the traditional word is called, uh, in the traditional Buddhist word, is called bhavana. It means to bring into being, to bring forth. What it is that's brought forth when we meditate is a natural uh, radiance of mind, a natural beauty, a sparkling, uh, passionate presence. That's, what's, that's what the mind is at rest, when we're not so busy doing and comparing and figuring and striving.
It's not at all that uh, ambition is, is not a good thing in our life. Healthy ambition is very important. It's good to have goals uh, to seek, to live for. At one time, Mao took Nainoa, the young Hawaiian student, out to an area, Coco Head, it's near where Michelle and I live, and where they often studied the stars as they came out at night. And sometimes Mao uh, said hardly anything, sometimes he said nothing. Just let Mao, just let Nainoa, the young Nain Hawaiian navigator, look for himself and take in the dome of the sky and the horizon. This time, Mao said one thing. He said, can you see where Tahiti is? Tahiti is thousands of miles to the south. And Nainoa, whose knowledge up to that point uh, had been through math and studying astronomy and whatnot, through the kind of inquiry of the West, pointed in the compass direction he thought Tahiti was in. And Mao said, but can you see it? And Nainoa wasn't sure what he meant, but he pictured it in his mind. And he said, yes, I can see it. And Mao says, good. You must keep the vision of the moving island in your mind. If you lose the vision, you'll get lost. And that's all he said that night at Cocoa Head as the sun went down and the stars arose. So it's healthy for us to keep um, goals in mind, visions in mind, particularly ones that incite us, incite that sparkling, passionate presence, that quality of the natural radiant mind when we're not busy striving, when we're not caught up in our fears and desires. Those are important. The time of meditation practice, like coming to a retreat, is a really unusual time in our lives. It's a real rare time in our lives. It's a unique that a group of young people give up four days of busy, busy lives to come here and learn a bit about what retreating means. The power of silence, of stillness. Power of stillness. For it is in learning this quality of stillness inside, not an external imposition. Not people around you saying, be still, be quiet. That's not it at all. It's a powerful inner way of being quality of being, this stillness. It's as we learn, as we find it and rest in that, that all becomes clear. And all the strivings and doings of the world, at least temporarily, subside. And perhaps the vision, whatever our particular island is, 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 is a clear, focused picture in the heart, our mind, that, that we then can follow that then draws out this passionate uh, presence that we call mindfulness and wisdom and compassion. In the beginning, these street retreats were it's only a few of you, maybe 12, the first year, 15 the next year, and all the all of, the, all, of you, all of the people who came to sit, the young people who came to sit, were the sons and daughters 
of older meditators. And we would go around and they'd say why they were here. And most of them said, ah, my, my mom told me I should come, you know, or my dad made me come, or you know, it was like that. And then some years went by and more began to come. It kind of doubled. The last few years, it's been really full like this, and, and people are coming out of self-motivation. People are coming because they hear about it, or they feel that inquiry inside themselves. They take an interest in the nature of the mind and heart, how consciousness works. They get their friends to come. Many of you are meditators, and no one else in your family is. The unique thing that, uh, that we didn't have when we were young. I became interested at the age of many of you. I was 16. And the only thing that became available to me, available to me in my search were books by uh, Jack Kerouac from here in Massachusetts, Lowell, like On the Road and Dharma Bums. Kerouac was a, a literary genius and a genuine inner seeker. And he found the Dharma. He just didn't find a practice for it. And he suffered for it in the end. But he put a context for me that there was something, there was something deeper than the daily life we usually experience, the changes, the vicissitudes, the gains and losses, the pleasures and pains that we meet every day in ourselves and our relationships. Put, in, put it into context. Uh, and travel became an early thing in my life, traveling to developing countries. And that helped me to see, too, from through the eyes of another culture. It's like learning another language. Took me out of myself. And the more limited view, um, when we can't step outside, when we can't view life through other forms, other languages, when we can't see how, how to navigate, when we meet the storms of life and the difficulties of life. So to step outside a mindset, we look back and see clearly what our experience might truly be. Meditation is like this. Meditation is like going into another world, another culture, so to speak. Although we're not at all removing ourselves from life, meditation is not an escape. It's a way of life. It's a way of understanding who we are and what life is. At first, it might seem a little confusing because uh, there's a certain setting of limits and of reduced circumstances. You know, your helpers are around saying, oh, it's a walking period. It's a sitting time. <laughs> They're like little mindfulness reminders when we ourselves forget to be mindful because it's so easy to do. We get pulled away easily out of this power of silence. There's a joy in setting limits. As I said, I think the opening night, it's that kind of uh, restraint of senses where we discover uh, the meter of poetry, the melody of song, the, the beauty of relationship and friendship, the fidelity of that. So the setting of limits helps us set aside how we ordinarily get swept away by the senses. If Mao, the navigator, were lost in what he saw and heard and smelled and tasted, 
and felt in his body. He wouldn't know where he was. He couldn't hold the vision of the island. So it's not like we're inhibiting or restricting ourselves from experiencing sights and sounds and so forth, but we're paying attention. We're learning the very nature of seeing rather than get lost in what is seen. We're learning the very nature of what of hearing rather than getting lost in what is heard. It's felt in the body and is in the mind too. The very nature of thoughts, emotions, feelings, consciousness itself as it streams along. Rather than getting lost in the content of our thought, the story and drama. That's the value, and that's how we, uh, in time, rejoice in the setting of limits. The solitude, the power of solitude, that brings forth, invites forth, that silent awareness. It's not at all nothing. It's full. It's rich. It's passionate with that sense of direct connection with life as it is. That's the idea, and that's the intent of, of your buddies and helpers when, when they remind us, you know, ah, it's a sitting, it's a walking, pay attention, be in the moment, be with your experience as it is, don't be forgetful. The form of our practice, the, the road we take when we enter the meditative way, um, we call this particular path the Eightfold Path, uh, which combines elements of the non-harming we spoke of on opening night. Uh, Diana, Rebecca talked about it, the, the term we use traditionally, sila. It means harmony with life. It means non-harming. It means the respect and love of life, so deeply so that our wisdom itself is what teaches us how to protect rather than harm. So the non-harming is the, with, with, is the is integrity with which we navigate our lives through skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood. Things that some of you have been talking about with some of us and in discussion groups. When we enter the more traditional retreat mode, when we go into the silence, when we start to experience the solitude, feeling moment to moment sensations in the body, or connecting with the breath, or watching a thought, or feeling an emotion, that's when we begin to get a deep sense of, of wise navigating, so which, is, which is a way you can regard this non-harming. Out of this deeper understanding and deeper sense of connection, surely our speech will be affected. The words we choose, the quality, tone of voice, and what we really want to say and how to listen when someone else is saying. Likewise with our actions. There's a real power in what we do with our lives, very physically, just the actions of our bodies, 
when we pay attention, when we have in mind, when we hold the vision in mind of living a life uh, of loving kindness, of compassion, a life of quality. It makes a difference what we do to our bodies and we do to other beings. When the navigators uh, train traditionally in the line of, of Mao from Micronesia, they spend long periods of time in solitude, kind of like a vision quest, Native American uh, tradition of the young, young woman or man goes off into nature for days alone to find a sense of who they are and their sense of place in life on the planet. Likewise with these navigators, they go off sailing sometimes for days by themselves and just learn to f through feeling the environment around them. Mao, as a master navigator, uh, was so in tune that when he couldn't see around him for storms and other conditions, he could still feel the current through the boat, through the canoe, and know where he was feel the direction of the primary current, even, as I have said, if there were at least five other kinds of waves simultaneously happening. So it's that, it's that kind of uh, foundation of stillness and the integrity that comes from solitude and being quiet and beginning to understand the, the great reverberating effects of our speech and actions and what we do with our livelihoods. Uh, that we, that we become so sensitive, so deeply in tune, even on that intuitive level with things as they are. One time, uh, out on the, the Hokulea, a double hull sailing canoe that was built in Hawaii 20 years ago, um, Nainoa, the young Hawaiian, was training. It was being the navigator. And Mao was staying back. He wasn't doing much. These navigators only sleep maybe three, four hours in a full day, and only in short catnaps. And Mao said he actually never went to sleep. He would just rest, close his eyes. It was probably very much like mindfulness practice. We just rested in his body, in, in the awareness of his body. So one time, it was in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning, and sudden winds came up and storms. And uh, they had they put up the crew on Nainoa's instruction, put up the the uh, storm sails. And so this went on for a couple, two, three hours, two, three, you know, three thirty or so. And then all of a sudden, Mao came out from under his his canvas resting place, unannounced, and he just said, "Take down the sails." The crew didn't have a clue what was going on, but they never hesitated in following the instructions of this man they trusted uh, totally. So they took him down. And within 20 minutes, a, a violent storm with 40 to 60 mile an hour gusts came that would surely have uh, damaged the sails, perhaps the mast, could even have capsized the boat. It just came like that. And then and when it seemed to kind of soften, he said, okay, put up the other sails. And he went back and rested, disappeared again. How did he know? And this is what 
Nainoa could never figure out how did this man, you know, who was trying to learn so much over these many years, how did he know? The answer is probably something like what we do when we find our own sense of solitude, when we find how to be with ourselves. Meditation is learning how to be with ourselves in the wisest and most compassionate way. When we talk about this present time awareness, when we try to explain the difference between uh, the mind that thinks or interprets experience and the mind that just rests with experience, we're pointing to what mindfulness is. It's impossible to say what it is because it's, 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 it is itself a pre-verbal awareness. So we can't really ascribe terminology to it except to indicate what it does. What it is is what we ourselves must experience in those moments when we are just here. So on the foundation of this non-harming, the first, uh, the, um, the basis, the basis of the whole meditative path that I'm calling the Eightfold Path, rests the awareness training. And that consists of the, the energy or effort that we put forth each moment, the mindfulness itself, and the concentration. The effort is really important because if we overdo it, if we overstrive, we're going to miss it and exhaust ourselves and be attached to getting somewhere that we'll never arrive at. And if we, if we don't use the right effort, we also aren't going to get it. Right effort is, the, is um, uh, like learning to surf, really. It, it's, it's just the right energy put forth to paddle the surfboard. Not too much. If it's too much, the front of the board will dig down into the, uh, into the water. We call that pearl diving. And if it's not enough, you're not going to catch the wave. It's just those few strokes. And then you've got to use the feeling through the body to feel the wave start to lift you up on the surfboard. And then you stop paddling. And then you stand up. And then your effort becomes very relaxed. And then it's, it's, then it's a, a, a question of balance and skill in working with the wave. Feeling the wave through the board, through your body, and playing with the wave. You never know what's going to happen. Each wave is totally unique. So it's always going to be different because there's so many conditions that come to make a unique wave. Its direction, and the wind, and the bottom of, the, the bottom of it, the preceding wave, and the wave that's behind it that's pulling out water from the wave in front of it. So they're always different. And it's just a way of being in the moment that connects you totally with that wave and therefore with the moment. Every moment of experience is like a different wave. So meditation requires just the effort or energy required to connect with that moment's experience. The rising movement of the breath, the, the inhalation at the nostrils, or that sound that's so nuanced in the various timbres, tones, the sensation in the body, that, that, that patch of heat or pressure or vibration or tingling. Each of those is only happening in the present moment. Once it's gone, 
Our only relationship to it would be through memory and the impression it's left. And that's why we say, you know, keep letting go, keep being in the moment, because there's another wave of experience. It might be that very thought about what just happened, but then we're with that thought. And then the next thing that comes up, the next sensation, sound, or the breath, if we come back to our anchor. So the right effort is really important to have a feeling for not too much and not too little, just necessary to connect with the moment. And then the awareness follows, that, that presence, that sparkling presence of mind that's totally and non-judgingly non connecting with what is, a feeling awareness, a pristine awareness. It's just open to that one breath, that one sound, that passing thought, the lingering emotion. And it's this momentum of mindfulness, when we talk about being continuous, that starts to make the mind feel like water. It starts to collect from being so scattered and spaced. It starts to feel unified. You know, when all these drops of water, when you put them together, they, like mercury, you know, they just bind, cohere, and become one little puddle, you know, or one little um, pool, or a huge ocean, all bound together. The mind can become like a huge ocean, huge body of water, all collected, unified, at one. That's what's meant by concentration. Samadhi is the term, it means literally perfectly put together. So this is the awareness training. It, it, it has a long history in this tradition, 2,500 years. And it's because it works that it's here right now, today. That the wheel of these teachings uh, has come to the West and it's being offered to you all. Like life, meditation practice is at times really, really frustrating. Yeah, because we get restless, there's too much energy or not enough energy, or we feel uh, tired, uh, or we feel uh, lost in the experience. And so there's this struggle, there's this tension, and then we let go again. But isn't it the same in life? You know, we're trying to get somewhere, we're trying to uh, understand something or accomplish something, and we get really caught up in it, and tight around it, confused by it. And isn't it true that when we kind of finally let go is when it becomes most clear, most available to our understanding? Another time that perhaps was Nainoa, the young Hawaiian navigator's first real test of his growing understanding and powers of navigation. He was in a storm for several days. And, <clears throat> and began to not know where he was and be afraid that he was lost and leading his crew in the wrong direction in the, in the Hokulea. Uh, and at one point, just at sunset, you know, he 
debated within himself whether to pull the sails down and just wait for the storm to clear so he could see something, so he could see the sky and read where he was because there was a lot of wind and they were going very fast. But he decided not to. Ma was again on the boat, but he was saying nothing at this time, absolutely nothing. And so it, it grew late into the night. He couldn't tell the difference between the clouds and the ocean. Their ocean swells were like 12 feet. Uh, and he, he, he couldn't really even see them. He could only feel them. But he had no real sense of direction. And it was going like this for hours. So he started to feel frustrated and tight and tense. He was striving to figure out where he was, what should he do, take down the sails or what. Pacing up and down uh, the canoe, putting on uh, a, at least an air of presence because it was so valuable uh, for the morale, inspiration of the crew to see him, to feel him, uh, calm them. But inside he was not calm. Finally, he went back to the boat, to the uh, bow of it, and just rested his arms on the railings. And just realized he, he just didn't know what to do. And he was exhausted. So he propped himself up, and, and he was really cold, although he had wet weather gear. It was raining and feeling cold and, and still feeling wet, shivering, holding himself up. And he said, he said, I just let go. I just let go. And all of a sudden, from, from somewhere down deep, even though it was been really cold, I just felt this warm feeling move throughout my body. And then I knew where the moon was. I can't say how. The clouds were up there, but I could just see the moon. I could feel it in my mind, in my heart. And I gave very clear directions which way to sail. And the boat went in that direction. And some hours later, the clouds opened up just for a short while. And there indeed was the moon. He had been right. And under his sleeping canvas, Mao just smiled. <laughs> Letting go. Another metaphor for meditation, a moment-to-moment -moment letting go while being fully, passionately present for experience, for exactly what's happening. So we have we have a tradition now, 2,500 years later, and thousands of people before us toward whom we can feel uh, gratitude for a practice that can make a difference in our lives. It can give direction through the uncertainties, the vicissitudes, the unknown changes that we can meet at any time. And, and they The skills that guide us are within us. We come to a retreat, and the guides, the helpers, the teachers, they are just here to help us discover those inner skills and tools 
and jewels. We already have them. They already live inside of us. And that's why we start to learn the beauty of the reduced circumstances, the, the surrendering to the setting of limits. Because that's how we discover these jewels. How we can face life. I'll close with a, a story of, one of the stories of many of the Buddha in his former lives. And the stories are told because they, they point to our own inner journey. Each story represents some particular quality that the Buddha-to-be, he was called the Bodhisattva, or being of awakening, uh, practice to perfection, to accomplishment, <coughs> so, such as patience, or compassion, or understanding, or loving kindness. You know, he would practice these as a as a quality in his awakening. So once the Bodhisattva, or the Buddha-to-be, was born as a prince, and he was raised by the queen and the king to take over one day as a compassionate king of their province. So when he was about 16, they sent him off on a long journey to study with a great master, all the arts of being a leader. And he went off through many, across many deserts and large lakes and streams and through forests and finally arrived and studied with this great master for many years and learned all that he needed to learn of general knowledge. And he also learned some of the meditative arts for his master had a spiritual intelligence and not just the kind of uh, intelligence of comparative learning and information, but a deeper learning. So he taught them some meditation skills and also martial arts. He became really skilled in all the martial arts and weaponry, bow and arrow and spear throwing and clubbing and uh, so forth, but all in the service of his deeper spiritual mission. So finally he became accomplished. His master said, you've, you've learned what you need to learn. Now you must go put it into effect. And he says, I'm going to name you because you're so skilled. I dub you Prince Five Weapons. Because he was good with the sword, the bow and arrow, the spear, the club, and the shield. <clears throat> so Prince Five Weapons set off on his journey home. Again, crossing deserts, large streams and rivers and lakes. Finally, he came up against this big dark forest and there were soldiers guarding it, a huge log over the pathway. And they said, you can't go in there. Prince Five Weapons says, why can't I go in there? And he says, uh, there's a monster in there, this huge ogre we call Sticky Hair. And anyone who goes in there never comes out. Or they, when they, if they do make it out, they wish they hadn't. Prince Five Weapons said, <clears throat> That's an awful strange sounding creature you have in there. But, you know, I've learned to put my trust in myself. And I'm going to have to go through here. So they tried to stop him, but he deftly jumped over the logs and was in no time deep in the forest. And the deeper he went, the narrower the trail got. 
and vines would start to grow all over in front of him and behind him. And he'd hear weird sounds and screeches. And all of a sudden, he heard this huge crunching sound. And trees bent over like toothpicks in front of him. Crunch, crunch, crunch. And all of a sudden, he looked up, and there was sticky hair, as tall as the ceiling, looking down at him. And he was just this mass of knotted dreadlocks. And he had huge, like cauliflower ears, you know, loaded with the cultural shrapnel. And his teeth were full of holes, so big that birds would s build nests in them. <clears throat> and when he breathed, his breath, breath was in dire need of Listerine. It was so bad it knocked our hero, Prince Five Weapons, back five feet. And the monster, Stig here, said, what are you doing in my forest? Prince Five Weapons said, well, I'm walking through it on my way home. It's the most direct route. What are you doing here? And what are you obstructing my way for? I own this forest, and anyone who comes in here is mine to do with what I please. You better be careful what you say, said Prince Five Weapons, for if you so much as take one step toward me, I'm good with every one of these weapons, and I'll drop you in a second. <laughs> said Sticky Hair. He started to reach for him, and Prince Five Weapons pulled out one of his arrows and shot it right toward his heart, and it went in foot or two and then dangled in his mass thick dreadlocks, sticky hair, just dangled. And then another one shot. And in a few seconds, all 50 from his quiver aligned his heart, his neck, everywhere. But it just, they just hung down, useless. And he shook like a wet dog and the arrows went flying all over the place. Prince Five Weapons had to cover himself with his shield. But he thought to himself, that's nothing. I'm really good with a bow and arrow, but I'm much better with my sword. So he pulled out his slick, sharp sword from its sheath and went right for the shins, knowing he could drop him with a good stab right through his flesh into the shins. But it also went in a few feet and got stuck in the sticky hair, and he could no longer push in or pull out. So the sword was useless. But our spirited young hero then thought, ah, that's nothing. I have my trusty spear, and I can, I can lunge that right to his third eye. And he pulled back and launched his javelin straight between the eyes of Stiggy Hair Master. But it, too, went in three or four feet and just stuck in the hair and dangled down. Well, I have my club, and I'll hit his Achille Achilles hill, heel and bring him down with the pain of the blow of my powerful club. And he wound up and swung it, but it just bounced back and forth like a basketball, doing nothing. <laughs> the hair of sticky hair just seemed to climb like an octopus around the club, take it away from the hands of our prince five weapons. So, bow and arrow, nope, spear, sword, club, all useless. Well, that's okay, because my skills at martial arts really even exceeds the use of these weapons, mere toys. 
So he wound up with a karate kick and a tai chi kick and a judo move, and he tried all his things. But first he got one hand stuck, and then the other, and then his right foot, and then his left foot. And he thought, hmm, I'm pretty stuck here. I better use my head. <laughs> and like those uh, awful wrestling movies on TV, you know, he used his head to try and knock the kneecap off his sticky hair. And he was really stuck. <laughs> but through all of this, sticky hair monster is thinking, this young man has the heart of a lion. He's so cool and so courageous. I better be careful. He might have you know, some secret weapon I don't know about. He's getting a little worried. So he peeled him off his sticky, <laughs> his sticky shin and said, <coughs> excuse me, Mr. Prince Five Weapons. You wouldn't by any chance happen to have some sort of weapon I don't know about. You're unlike anyone who's ever come before. You don't seem so afraid of me. You keep trying to attack me with your silly weapons. But you're not afraid. What makes you so fearless? Prince Five Weapons, well, I indeed do have a secret weapon. And if you were to eat me, like I know you have been so many before me, you'd be sorry. For I have the sword of wisdom and the power of compassion. And I could cut myself out of you in no time. And then the way that was said, spoken, it felt firmly, but right to the heart of Sticky Hair, in all his years of fear and these protective measures of defenses began to melt away. He felt exposed vulnerable and seen from the strength of this young man, Prince Five Weapons. And he said, well, hmm, actually, I wasn't even planning on eating even a piece of you, not even the size of a pea. And I'm going to let you go. I'm going to set you free. Well, so you think you're going to set me free, do you, said Prince Five Weapons. Well, I'm not going to set you free. You've caused a lot of trouble here. And why do you think you're in the position you're in? If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to move from darkness to darkness, year after year, lifetime after lifetime. So I don't set you free. I want you to start taking better care of yourself, first of all. Clean up. Your dreadlocks are tangled. Make them at least look good. Brush your teeth. Take some Listerine. Eat good food. Start to clean up the trails here. Let the light in. Protect the travelers from real harm here. Okay, I will, said Sticky Hair. And Prince Five Weapons gave him a few good meditation lessons. How to sit, how to walk how to do loving kindness, how to practice mindfulness. And after a day or two of, of a good, strong, steady retreat, Prince Five Weapons says, okay, now I'm going, but I'm going to come back and check on you. So off he went. He shouldered his weapons, went home. Before long, his uh, parents, the king and the queen, 
passed away, he became King Five Weapons, known as the Opener of the Ways. And he did check back on his friend, finally. And he had changed for the better. Every morning, he woke up. After his yoga exercises, he did sitting, <laughs> walking. He, he made a garden, a park, out of the whole forest. People were no longer afraid to walk through. They felt guided and protected from all the fearsome animals and goblins, spirits of the place. And he looked almost handsome. They became good friends. And when the goblin uh, sticky hair monster passed away, uh, he became many other animals over many, many lifetimes, deer, rabbit, bear. And finally, he became a human, started to come to retreats. In fact, it's said that he's now here at IMS, <laughs> sitting out there somewhere or up here. So you just sit with that story for a while. I'm not going to say anything more about that. I'm going to close with a poem. You just sit, listen, take this poem in. This poem's about all of us here. It's by uh, Galway Cannell. The bud stands for all things, even those that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Thus, sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and tell it in word or deed it is lovely, till it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Last things Mao said to Nainoa after 20 years of being a student was, now you, now you know all there is to know, but it will take you 20 years to see. <laughs> <laughs>